Okay, and welcome to episode 14 of the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. Today, it's my pleasure to bring uh, three expert guests on to uh, this show. Um, just as a bit of background, uh, the topic that we're going to be getting into is evidence-based recommendations for natural bodybuilding contest uh, preparation, specifically uh, nutrition and supplementation. This is actually the title of a paper by these three guys in the Journal of the International Society for Sports Nutrition, GISSN. So I highly recommend you look up this paper. It's an excellent resource on the topic. Um, and uh, I, of course, are Laurent Bannock. So, hi guys, it's uh, Eric Helms, it's Alan Aragon and Peter Fitchin on the show with me today. Hey, hello. Hey, so um, this is going to be interesting because I'm here in London, of course. Uh, Alan and Peter are in various places within the States and Eric, of course, is in New Zealand. And um, I know uh, a lot of our listeners will know you guys. Um, I know quite a few of them will know Eric. Uh, Eric is a, a doctoral researcher at um, the uh, it's AUT University, isn't it, Eric? So you're at AUT yeah. in Auckland. Uh, gave right. a, I gave a lecture there once about 10, 10 years ago. I love it. I love New Zealand. Uh, so you must be having a great time there. Um, and I know love also it. Eric is um, like most of the people we have on this show aren't just aren't just uh, researchers or practitioners and lecturers you're also a practitioner and you have a particular specialty in the topic that we're getting into today and actually um, both as a, a, a natural competing bodybuilder yourself but also as a practitioner who helps prepare um, athletes in in prepping for their for their shows I know that uh, everyone is um, is pretty familiar with Alan Aragon, because of course Alan has been on this podcast before with Brad Schoenfeld talking about nutrient timing, um, and Alan is of course a, a, a prolific uh, researcher and writer, and uh, also a practitioner, which is always evident in the way um, he uh, uh, in the way he discusses his his work. And uh, Peter, who I've not uh, met before, but Peter is a, also a doctoral researcher at the university. Um, of Illinois in uh, and what, what what's the area that you're focusing on Peter uh, nutritional science brilliant okay so anyway between all of us we we know a couple of things about nutrition and of course we realize that there's um, there's, there's more we don't know which is which is why it's useful to talk about these things and have the studies and, and sort of explore uh, the science and particularly the you know the evidence base behind these things um, so Eric why don't you sort of lead the, the charge here and just give us a little bit of background about, you know, why, I mean, you know, bodybuilding is a, wow, I mean, it's a, it's a big area, of course. Um, there's various types of bodybuilding. Some are uh, natural and some are not so natural, of course. There's a hell of a lot of recreational bodybuilders out there. Not everyone gets on, on show, uh, you know, gets on a stage, but of course, lots of people do want to engage in physique uh, preparation or bodybuilding so they can look look better naked for want of a better term um <laughs> but but you know for all of the the bros out there that 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 have so much opinion and you know all the expertise quote unquote that we see in 
all your your major bodybuilding magazines. You got you got your 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 experts in the gym. Um, everyone seems to think they know a little bit about bodybuilding. I mean, why why did you even go into trying to establish the evidence behind this stuff? I, I think just just because of what you said right there, it's that there is so much information out there, and not much of it is necessarily based on anything grounded in evidence. Um, no, I'm not saying that anecdote or experience isn't valuable. I think it's incredibly valuable. Um, but there's not a lot of synthesis of the, um, the evidence-based information out there into some kind of useful guide. Um, if you were to, to go to PubMed and just search for bodybuilding, what you'd primarily get uh, would be um, interviews and case studies of um, bodybuilders who have been using uh, you know, self-prescribed anabolic steroids and other drugs, and basically scientists just expounding on 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 the detrimental side of it and, and that that kind of aspect. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I felt there was a real gap, and it was something that, as natural bodybuilding has gotten more popular, I think there was a need for it. Um, and it just happened to kind of parallel some of the work that Pete's doing. Pete is also a uh, a competitive natural bodybuilder and a coach and um, been involved in a, a case study and primarily for the same reasons of, of trying to say hey you know there's not only one way to do this there is actually a dedicated natural community out there and they're and they're hungry for information yeah and and uh, I, I know Alan you may recall when we did our podcast on uh, nutrient timing with Brad uh, one angle of that was we were talking about the importance of evidence-based nutrition and of course this is this is a big problem area, isn't it? Particularly with with bodybuilding, and and there's various angles on this. It's it's not just that there is an awful lot of pseudoscience behind what we should or shouldn't be doing for bodybuilding, particularly pushed by sort of motives that are more to do with the sales of supplements and various other things. But also the researchers themselves often don't really have much knowledge or experience of bodybuilding, and although they're writing about stuff that 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 you know contributes knowledge to the arena of of physique preparation bodybuilding they themselves aren't necessarily the right ones to be designing the studies because they're you know using untrained people and 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 whatnot isn't that right alan yeah yeah absolutely um i think that there's definitely a lack of of guys who walk the walk so to speak uh when they're doing the write-ups or or contributing to the literature in this area and I think that while um, while that that is true, there's also some treachery in I guess judging the quality of uh, of the information based on the physiques of the authors. Now, thank goodness, all three of us are at least like eight out of ten on the sexiness scale. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. <laughs> I mean, it's it's pretty. It's pretty funny. We don't whip out the physique card very often, but what if we have to? You know, we we deliver. Um, but uh, but yeah, I, I think that with the with bodybuilding uh, information and trying to frame it as uh, something that has an evidence basis, and you, when you're trying to disseminate this information, I think that there's so much confusion out there because there is this ego slash social status element that kind of goes along with. The person giving out the, uh, the the bodybuilding information. It's not like mathematics, where people are just throwing around data. You know, there's almost this marriage of okay, well, check, check, I, I'm I'm trying to reach this kind of social status 
uh, within this you know hierarchy or caste system. And so what I'm saying has to somehow be tied into what I've accomplished personally, as opposed to just you know getting away from from the subjective stuff and, and heading towards the objective uh, uh, data of what's been demonstrated in research. Now, granted, we do have to bridge some pretty huge gaps with uh, personal experience, relay of anecdote and case study and whatnot. But the challenge there is kind of separating uh, separating that from the temptation to try to bolster your own status or your own ego or your own place in the industry as you deliver the information, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, Peter, I, I think you must find it interesting also as a, both as a, you know, as a, a competing natural bodybuilder, but also as a doctoral researcher, uh, you must find it interesting even within, you, you know, your own sort of environment as an academic and as a researcher that you'll be having conversations with maybe fellow graduate students or even lecturers who are maybe less familiar with some of these topics, although they might still be researching in the exercise science field or the sports science field. I mean, how, you know, how, how, how do you, how have you seen that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I can definitely relate to that. Um, you know, I, I think one good example is I was talking to fellow graduate student, you know, academic side of things very well educated not as familiar with the sport of, of bodybuilding or, or anything in that direction and I started talking about some of the the concept of reverse dieting has you know very little if really not any science behind it at the moment um, hopefully that'll change soon but they basically looked at me like I was insane but I can tell them from practice that it is a real thing and that just more science needs to be done science simply needs to just catch up to Kind of where bodybuilding is, and that I mean that's one of many examples of things, you know, you see in the bodybuilding world where science just simply, uh, you know, hasn't caught up yet. And hopefully through writing this review, you know, we were able to point out some of the areas where, uh, you know, further further work is needed just to kind of fill some holes and and to give us some more answers. Yeah. Now, in fact, uh, I mean, I'm an example of uh, someone who's been influenced by your paper here, guys. We, uh, my own lab. Um, have been conducting some studies uh, on a on a case study that we're going to publish in JSSN shortly. Um, very much molded about some of the things that you've written about, where we've been collating things like uh, metabolic data, you know, like RERs, uh, VO2 maxes, uh, obviously body composition data, um, strength and power data, that sort of thing. Um, as this guy has progressed over a 16-week period, and one of the things we really struggled with was not to do all the crazy stuff that everyone else is telling you you should do to get ready for the competition, and particularly in the final stages, you know, you start getting into these situations where you haven't really quite lost enough body fat, or you know, what do you do to peak and all that stuff that we'll get into in this podcast, and you're really tempted to start doing some of the the crazy stuff that um, that's considered well, not crazy. I mean, it depends who you're talking to. The, the people consider not doing certain things crazy, but to keep it completely science and evidence based, we discovered um, quite a bit, which I will uh, leave to when we publish our study. But um, that's kind of kind of down to you guys, because no one's collecting this data and publishing it. So um, it's great. So Eric, take us through. Um, a little bit, you know, sort of behind the sort of the framework, um, you know, behind this whole 
this whole business between you know of preparing for natural bodybuilding contest prep just bear in mind that um we have a lot of different listeners you know sports scientists snc coaches and so on but i think it'd be quite useful if we could sort of give a sort of a, a structure of what i mean what do people normally do what normally happens uh i know you could write a textbook in itself on this but just sort of give us an overview of of, of what we're talking about here so I, I guess uh, to clarify, you're talking about what people traditionally do for yeah, prep, or are we talking? Yeah. Okay. yeah, let's first talk about traditionally, and then we'll 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 sort of pull that apart a bit and sort of differentiate how much of that is necessary or unnecessary or scientific or unscientific. Okay, so your stock standard approach to contest prep is typically an eight to sixteen week, and sixteen week is a long diet, probably twelve weeks is more normal um, diet in which. The person basically takes this all-out flat sprint uh, towards getting into stage condition. Um, the majority of the time, the the structure of the diet is based on food elimination. So there will be a greater number of food sources at the beginning compared to the end. Um, and things that are, are higher in carbohydrate and fat are, are drawn out and drawn out and drawn out uh, simultaneously while the volume of training both cardiovascular and resistance training is kind of on this ever-increasing incline uh, until you get close to the show. And uh, I won't get too much into the training side of it, although there is a training paper that we, we wrote on this as well. But the the reps go up, the volume of cardio goes up, becomes you start doing two-a-day training. Uh, so the training stimulus actually changes uh, while the deficit constantly increases. Um, and then they kind of just roll the dice and hope that by the time they get on stage, they're looking good. And if they're they're not, then the amount of strange things that is actually quite commonplace, like you pointed out, that they do in the final week tends to increase. Um, it is stock standard to cut water, uh, manipulate uh, sodium and potassium, uh, load carbohydrates, and to do other things in an attempt to quote unquote dry out um, to try to get the, the achievable condition that we're used to seeing on stage. Um, and the success rate, from what I have seen, is like I said, kind of like rolling the dice. So, just to just to clarify, I mean, how typically how long do you would you say is pretty average for someone uh, to get themselves to a, a place where they feel they're kind of ready to even start that say sixteen week process? Um, is that something that you know someone's going to do three months of of lifting, or are we talking? you know, three years, six years, or is it a highly varied scenario? I would say there's a lot of variety, but typically if someone is telling you they're going to get on stage, most of the time, although this isn't the, the rule, they are a experienced lifter of weights. They've probably been a recreational bodybuilder for a while, maybe never even considered competing, and then after a, developing a, a decent amount of muscle, uh, they were told by a friend or they went to a show or they got some exposure to the competitive side of it and kind of thought, you know, maybe I could do that. So I'd say typically if you look at a an open division in a bodybuilding show, most people have been lifting three years or more, I would say. Yeah, okay, that's, that's great. So, it's, it, I mean, it's open to a lot of people, isn't it, this concept that if you're in uh, underneath that body fat, if, you, if, if you've got a bit of muscle on you and you're kind of kind of decent shape, then it, it's... It's a possibility for some people if they feel that's a goal that they want to achieve um, is they could potentially enter some kind of physique competition. Um, 
So, I mean, Peter, j just give us a, um, I'm doing this just for background, really, just to help everyone sort of get an idea. I mean, obviously, we're, we're not really focusing so much on the, the type of body bodybuilding competitions where the guys are absolutely massive because they've almost certainly been taking uh, some chemical assistance, um, you know, steroids and whatnot, which, of course, uh, in certain scenarios, uh, almost anything um, you know, in the background of taking those drugs, they're, they're almost certainly going to be big and massive and huge. But even then, nutrition is clearly still a very important component. But for the sort of guys and gals that are out there, I mean, you know, uh, uh, there are different kinds of competitions, aren't there, Peter? Like your sort of uh, 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 bikini contests, your uh, uh, sort of physique, and then you've got slight, the slightly bigger guys. Do you want to give us just an idea of of the, the variety of competitions there might be. Yeah, so there there have been a lot more classes that have popped up in in recent years. Um, I know ten years ago when I started, there competing there there weren't nearly the variety of different classes with different uh, kind of judging standards as there are now. Um, so I guess for female, uh, the range there's kind of probably four classes kind of range from bikini all the way up to women's bodybuilding. So. Women's bodybuilding, you know, you're looking at, at you know, being as big and muscular as possible, um, being as lean as possible. Uh, women's physique's just a step below that, maybe not quite as big, not quite as lean. Uh, figure's kind of a step below that, and then bikini's kind of a step below that. Um, you know, bikini is oftentimes what, you know, the look that you see in like a fitness model in a magazine, um, and it kind of goes up to bodybuilding. For men, uh, there's pretty much just two classes at this point, just men's physique and bodybuilding. Um, bodybuilding, you know, same as with women, it's getting as big and lean as possible. And men's physique is not quite as big, not quite as lean. Um, and, and some of these classes where they're not looking for as big or as lean, uh, you can actually be penalized in the judging criteria for being too big or too lean. And, and there's some arbitrary idea of where those lines are, but that, that's another uh, debate in itself. Right. So, I mean, we're in this podcast, we're, we're kind of more focused on the science as you see it and, and um, you know, as it relates to preparing for getting on stage. So we've got an idea here that there's a sort of a, a window of opportunity that exists between the time you start this approach to the time that you're going to physically find yourself or your client or, or the individual is going to find themselves on stage where they are then in a, in a situation where they're going to start presenting their physiques to an audience and to judges. Um, so, Alan, why, I mean, why, why are we not doing this, say, three years before the event? Why, or three, you know, I mean, six months before the event, why, why do we start to look at this about 16 weeks before the competition? Well, there's only... A in the beginning, um, when you decide that you want to do a contest, uh, you cannot be carrying too much body fat um, unless you, you know, you, you literally decide, okay, well, next year or a year or two from now, I want to, I want to prep. Um, it, it's partially a matter of uh, maximizing the retention of lean tissue. I mean, you can't diet uh, indefinitely and uh, expect to hang on to appreciable appreciable amount of muscle. So the kind of the, the standard time frames for naturals being anywhere from as little as like 10, 12-ish weeks all the way up to 
16 to 20 ish weeks. Some people take, you know, some people take uh, six months to prep and kind of, you know, do it even slower. But um, certainly anything beyond, gosh, you know, prepping for uh, five, six months, you sort of risk uh, running into a bunch of problems, and not all of which are, are going to be uh, physiological or the loss of muscle, you start uh, dipping into uh, psychological issues and lifestyle and just quality of life, and you, you don't necessarily want to be dieting for uh, most of the year. Um, so that's the things that factor in. I, I wanted to I wanted to mention, you know, on the note that, that Peter said that uh, you can be penalized, if depending on the division you enter, like the physique guys, for example, if you come in like too big or too lean, you can be penalized for that. And I actually had a client who um, experienced that. Uh, and this was back in 2010. I had a I had a guy who wanted to compete in physique. And back in 2010, physique competition was it wasn't as uh, nearly as widespread as it was right now. And so I'm like, oh, cool. That well, this should be easy. <laughs> you know, the guy already looks good. We'll just you know take him to to the max and then and then have him go in there and blow away the competition. Well. The judges told him he was too big and too shredded. And our prep time, amazingly enough, was, was five weeks. So the guy was this gifted. We had five weeks. He came in leaner than I think almost anybody on stage and more massive. Uh, and here I was thinking, dang, you know, um, you really can get docked depending on the division you choose. And something I, I wanted to mention, too, when you were asking Peter about the different divisions, when they came out with men's physique, I, I wanted to throw in the the concept that a lot of guys who skip leg day they must have been really happy, must have been really happy about that. So, <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's where they hope that the judge is uh, so short that they can only see above the table and not below the table line, obviously. <laughs> uh, but uh, Eric, as a uh, as a very experienced uh, coach and practitioner in, in this area, now by the way, I've got to mention I heard you speak when you were here in London. You had your two day. Uh, event. I was there in the audience and uh, 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 really appreciated your talk. So thank you for that. Um, but um, you know, at what point are you going to look at your client and go, "Do you know what we've we've got? Yeah, there's 16 weeks until the competition. But you know, what what is the criteria that you're going to look at where where you're going to decide this client's just not ready yet, over and above the obvious that they've got three, you know, 30 pounds to lose maybe or whatever. But I mean, what are the things that you have found? in your own practice where you're like, do you know what, to do this properly, you maybe should go for the next competition, not for this competition. That's a great question. And first off, I'm honored that you attended the talk in, in London. Thank you, Lauren. <laughs> yeah. um, but to, to, to tell you the, the truth, um, I would have to say that you'd be surprised how often I tell someone, look, you need twice as much time as you think. Um, while ideally, like, like Alan said, you want to have as short a diet as possible, when it comes to natural bodybuilding and dealing with folks who are walking around with anywhere between 15 to 20 percent body fat in the off season and maybe not realizing how much they have to lose to get into true contest condition shape, uh, which is pretty much the lack of visibility of any body fat these days, um, I would say more often than not, the folks I work with are dieting 20 plus weeks. And um, yeah, if it, if it needs to be a very, very long diet where they are dieting more than half the year, we do things like diet breaks. Um, 
you know, small small periods of walking food up in the middle of it, and to try to mitigate all those negative downsides to dieting for a long period that Alan brought up. But um, people often underestimate how much body fat they need to lose, especially beginners. Uh, and sometimes, you know, if they're 40 plus pounds over what I know is probably going to be their stage weight, I'll tell them, you know, hey man, let's 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 look at next year. Uh, there's no no reason we can't do like a three month cut, get you looking good for summer, walk your food back up, and then we can you know do a little bit of an off season and step back into it for next year um, and if the person is willing to be you know patient and we can kind of buy into the idea of making some improvements in some other ways and they don't need to get on stage now um, which I think is always a good attitude to have uh, because the stage will always be there and this should hopefully be a little more holistic than just about uh, competing tomorrow um, then that's something I can kind of massage into their minds but um, a lot of the times preps are lost before they're even started because someone comes to me and they want to lose 30 pounds in 16 weeks and um, that is going to be, if it is successful, a hellish diet and more likely just not successful in terms of achieving a, a very high conditioning standard. Yeah, no, and I'm glad you mentioned that. And in fact, um, I did a previous podcast with Lane Norton uh, and Abby Smith-Ryan all about metabolic adaptation and uh, the potential consequences of just, you know, n not eating enough food to allow your body to, you know, to function properly and having that energy gap so great that it results in negative metabolic adaptation. And, and this whole idea of, you know, to do this properly, you do need to diet on as many calories as possible. Um, so, so Peter, uh, uh, let's just expand upon this now. So we, we've mentioned the C word, the calorie word. I mean, you know, that is something that typically a lot of people really don't have enough of a clue about. So, I mean, what, what's the first thing that we need to be thinking about when it comes to that sort of, you're starting the preparation phase and we need to start thinking about caloric intake. Uh, what, what, are, what are the first thoughts that we need to be thinking about? Uh, I guess the first thought I would have is, I mean, along with what Eric said, you know, how far you need to how much you need to lose. The next thing I would think about is how much are you currently consuming? Um, and so that may mean, you know, a lot of times a lot of, you know, bodybuilders are tracking their food or at least loosely tracking their food in the off season. So they have some idea of what they're intaking. But I mean, if someone has no clue at what they're intaking, I would say the first step would be just figuring out where, what they're eating at the moment and are they maintaining, gaining, losing on that? kind of get an idea of what maintenance is at the moment. Um, if maintenance at the moment's pretty low, maybe take advantage of some of those metabolic adaptations um, in the sense that you can kind of walk your food up, as Eric was talking about, um, prior to trying to diet down. Um, otherwise, if, you know, if your food's fairly high, you know, the next step will be to find a, a reasonable deficit. Um, you know, in theory, 500 calorie deficit a day should be a pound a week, but I've I've seen people who you can drop three, four hundred, and they're dropping weight that fast, and people who you can drop have to drop six, seven, eight hundred to get dropping that fast. Um, so there, there is some individual variability, and that's something we get to in the paper also. Um, it's just some of the what we've observed in practice and how there is individual variability to what is kind of the commonly accepted rule. Um, but it, it, it is a bit of trial and error, unfortunately, um, due to some of the inv individual variability. But you, you only need you know, I, I like clients to shoot for 
roughly a pound a week. I tell them, give themselves as many weeks as you have pounds to lose, if not more, um, so that we have time to take breaks in the middle or, or um, kind of work food up a bit during prep if it's a longer prep and we need to. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I just, I guess as far as calories go, I, I would just not make the mistake of just drastically reducing them. Um, a lot of times you'll see guys in the gym kind of the traditional way this bodybuilding's kind of been done where guys do this 12-week, 8-week, whatever, sprint to a show and, uh, you know, rather than prepping for a little bit, bit longer. And during this, this rapid prep, they will basically cut their caloric intake in half and, you know, go from zero to two hours of cardio a day and all kinds of crazy things like that. And all that's going to do is just result in more muscle loss, going to decrease your performance in the gym, which is going to also lead to decreased muscle loss. Um, and so, yeah, just a more, more moderate caloric reduction is probably what, like you said, getting away with as much food as you are able to eat and still make progress. Yeah. No, that's, uh, that's a good way of putting it. So, I mean, Alan, are we, are we talking about any kind of calories here or, uh, you know, I mean, specifically how important is getting the, the sort of the macronutrient balance right here? Yeah, one thing that I've noticed is sort of dichotomy between the, the natural contest prep process versus the, the non-natural is um, that the naturals tend to, to really need to maximize the amount of carbs that they're taking in uh, while the reductions in total calories happen. So that is going to be mainly at the expense of, um, obviously there is going to be carbohydrate reduction as well, but uh, dietary fat reduction is something that really kind of, uh, it's kind of a necessary sacrifice. Um, and it can be, it can hit points where you are taking in amounts of fat that are low enough for you to not want to look at as, as normal maintenance. So um, the preserving a maximal amount of carbohydrate intake while still losing weight will preserve uh, training performance and it'll um, It'll also, it can also tend to uh, make the process a little bit more doable, a little bit more sustainable uh, psychologically versus some, some programs that kind of go kamikaze on the carb elimination and, you know, uh, you know we, we discussed ketogenic uh, approaches in the, in the paper as well. And for natural lifters on the whole, um, the, the best results in terms of preserving lean body mass come from uh, maximizing the amount of carbohydrate you take in during the dieting process. Right. So, obviously, we're, you know, we're, we're again, just to remind everyone, we're talking about prepping for this competition, which I think another way of looking at this is, is if, you know, if we think about periodization of training or periodization of nutrition, this is just another phase within that that sort of periodization it's not a reflection of what people should do all year round we are very specifically talking about getting ready for um a competition here um eric your um you, you wrote a, a, another paper um you know about protein needs specifically and of course i've had as i mentioned offline um we've had uh, Stu phillips and uh, Kevin Tipton and uh, with some other guys and Lane Norton and so on, we've discussed some of these sort of areas of, of protein need, but specifically relating to this idea of um, contest prep. I mean, what are your 
what are your thoughts and what have you found uh, in your research and also in your practice is, it, you know, is, is what, you know, the, the, how we should be approaching protein needs? Uh, that's, a, that's a great question. And um, yeah, basically my, my master's degree was founded on the idea that, hey man, it seems like there's a lot of things converging when one does a contest prep that theoretically increase uh, protein utilization and needs, quote unquote needs, in, in the body. Um, and there wasn't a lot of synthesis of that data or an awareness of that. There had been, you know, at the time, isolated mentions in the literature that, you know, a calorie deficit might increase protein needs, um, whispers that, that a lower body fat might, might increase protein usage in the body, uh, and discussion that both, uh, you know, endurance training and resistance training for, for different reasons uh, would increase the utilization of protein. Um, and I was thinking, well, hold on, you know, when a bodybuilder is getting increasingly leaner, uh, has a typically increasing calorie deficit, or at least the presence of one throughout prep, and is weight training uh, and, and doing cardiovascular training, typically, um, maybe we should consider how that might impact um, their protein needs or, or protein recommendations. Um, so, so for all of those reasons, um, there is an argument that, that a bodybuilder in the state of contest prep um, may benefit from a higher protein intake than we would typically recommend even for a strength athlete. You know, I think if you were to peruse the literature, typically the highest recommendation you can find is, you know, two grams per kg. Um, and uh, I essentially did, did the best I could with the limited data available out there, uh, which is why there isn't a lot of consensus here. Did a review, did a study, and, and tried to see, you know, what happens if you take uh, lean uh, athletes who are, who are doing resistance training during a calorie deficit and jack their protein up a little bit. Um, and I would say uh, there, there's a pretty strong argument uh, that two grams per kg probably get the job done, but there may be potential benefits to going slightly higher. Yeah, so on that, on that idea of the potential benefits, um, I mean, I was talking with uh, Dr. Jose Antonio on a, another podcast because uh, I've got all the all-stars on here, you know. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I've, I've had, um, uh, uh, Joey and I were talking about this. And of course, it's not just about taking in sufficient or optimizing protein with respect to what you're trying to achieve with your physical goals. But also, particularly for bodybuilding uh, contest prep, there's going to be some other things, isn't there? Like you're, you're cutting back on food, so there might be cravings. Uh, there might be some sort of psychological, emotional consequences of, of cutting back on certain foods. So, of course, um, that is another potential benefit there of, of going for the high, the high protein, a justification, isn't it? Oh, definitely. I think you can't, you really can't understate some of the, the psychological sides of this. Um, if you talk to anyone who's been through the process of contest prep, they will tell you that it is primarily a, a mental struggle and a sometimes even existential struggle trying to get through um, a, a contest prep uh, that is vigorous, hard, and long. Um, and anything you can do to give yourself a uh, bit of a buffer against some of the things that are bound to happen um, is valuable. So the satiating benefits or the subjective uh, feelings of just you feel a little better with a higher protein diet that has cropped up in a little bit of my research and um, is pretty ubiquitous across um, looking at hunger or 
or satiety that comes from a higher protein diet, I think is very valuable. Um, and yeah, Jose Antonio's recent publication is very telling. You know, I think I want to say a third of the participants who were asked to eat 4.4 grams per kilogram dropped out of that group. They just couldn't do it. You know, um, and uh, so the when you're in contest prep um, and you are you, you get extremely food focused and hungry um, that is certainly a tool that you can you can pull out and you may be going beyond what you think as a practitioner what would benefit uh, performance or uh, muscle repair or any any of the, the typical reasons we talk about protein um, you may be going above that limit in hopes that you may be improving adherence satiety or some kind of subjective feeling in your person so that they can actually make it through the process. Yeah, no, I, I, absolutely. And I think, you know, we need to remember that, that what we're trying to do here is get this person ready to look their best, uh, not necessarily perform at their best. They're not trying to lift the most. They're not trying to uh, run the fastest. It is very specifically a, a, a visual thing, isn't isn't it, Alan? So it's it's this is this is not just a performance thing. There's there's other parameters here that that needs to be needs to be borne in mind. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, like the the idea of um, of of eating certain certain types of carbs, certain times, and and whatnot. I mean that stuff. Uh, largely applies to performance-focused goals. Um, with bodybuilding prep, you general, generally are not going to be concerned with the very specific placement of, for example, um, carbohydrate. Like yeah, the distribution of carbohydrate through the day in contest prep. Uh, the way that I would approach it is that you want to strike a balance between be, being able to drive the performance of the training bout as well as kind of uh, keeping yourself on track with compliance so if your if your training program uh, isn't incredibly uh, glycogen depleting or endurance oriented then you can shuffle some of the bulk of your carbs at, at let's say the final meal right, right before bed um, a lot of folks are wedded to the idea that you need to have this huge slammer of carbohydrate post-exercise and in the pre-contest state you may have a very limited amount of total carbs throughout the day so if you're training for example uh, in, in the morning um, and you are kind of under this impression that you have to have uh, let's say a hundred grams of carbs post-exercise and then you slam that baby um, uh, right after the the morning workout, and then you're sort of just kind of scratching and chomping at the bit throughout the day, and then, <laughs> and certainly in through the evening, when in fact you could have distributed your carbs differently, and preserved some sanity during prep, and also achieved the same results. Um, I think that uh, I think that what the evidence shows is that 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 is possible. Um, so, so yeah, yeah, and, and just to just to come back to you, Alan, just quickly, because I know we, you know, we did a whole podcast on nutrient timing, so we we don't need to revisit all of that because, of course, um, they can just listen to that podcast because I think some of that is relevant to this. But 
I mean, in a nutshell, because we have a very specific population of people we're referring to here, uh, I mean, how relevant is nutrient timing and frequency um, as it relates to, to fat loss and, and lean mass retention for bodybuilding prep? I mean, is it, is it, is it the be all and end all or is it maybe, maybe less of an issue? Gosh, you know, there, there's a couple of different schools of thought on this. Um, I, and, and the thing is, you can take a look at the way 10 different top guys prep, okay? Um, and it's not like, you know, I, I've heard Dave Tate say with powerlifting, you know, everybody, all the top guys do the same shit. That's, that's really not the case with, with bodybuilding. Um, you, you take 10 different competitors, 10 different coach, prep coaches, they have 10 different programs running for these guys. And they, you know, they, they all show up, uh, the top guys, they all show up all looking good. Um, and the guy who's going to win the contest usually has the best genetics. <laughs> um, but, you know, barring genetic advantages and such, the the difference of of shuffling nutrients around an hour here, two hours there, through, throughout a twenty four hour period, is is pretty much negligible, man. When when you're looking at um, a contest prep period, uh, the timing of nutrients, mm, you know, we're we're not looking at we're not looking at winning soccer games during contest prep. We're looking at getting the macros in. We're looking at um, consuming protein frequently enough to take advantage of the hypothetical uh, anabolic effect of you know re reinitiating protein synthesis throughout the day, um, and you're also looking at consuming um, enough of the carbohydrate and fat to fulfill your total caloric requirement that allows you to lose the uh, the proper amount of weight per week, per month, etc. So. You know, to, to answer your to answer your question, nutrient timing is really going to depend on how well the individual works with it. Um, there, there are certain guys who will dish out a protocol like, okay, you need um, uh, X amount of carbohydrates and protein pre-workout, and you need X amount of carbohydrates and protein during workout, and then X amount of um, carbohydrate and protein post-workout. And you know what, man, I, I just while that can provide structure for the competitor and while it can make somebody believe that they're doing everything they possibly can, um, I think that you, you can be much more flexible with uh, how you nail your macronutrients by the end of the day. And, you know, most people are not going to be avoiding pre-workout meals or avoiding post-workout meals, and most competitors are not going to be eating less than three, uh, you know, mixed meals per day. Anyway, I mean, it's it's logistically not realistic. It's kind of far-fetched for people to completely be able to ignore uh, intake in the peri-workout period anyway. So I would definitely place the emphasis on daily totals. Uh, the timing of it, you know, it's just got to be individualized. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I'm glad you used the word in individual because... I mean, a, a recurring theme throughout this podcast of all the experts I've spoken to and most definitely the research that I'm seeing in my own lab, um, Peter, is is one of individual, sort of inter-individual variability. I mean, it really is a, an N of, one, N of one scenario, isn't it? Every, excuse me, every single person is an individual, obviously, 
and they all have strengths and weaknesses and so on. But there is no one size fits all um, approach to this, is there, Peter? Uh, no, def definitely not. I mean, um, in in all aspects of prep, and even even using the same approach, different people can have different effects. Um, a, a good example of this in the scientific literature uh, is comparing my case study for my prep to Chris Foss's case study during his prep. Um, we both used fairly similar protocols in the sense that, you know, it, I, I would say it follows a majority of the things that we, we discuss in our, our review paper in JSSN. Um, but you can see that, that I lost more lean mass, less fat mass, ha ended up having to do more cardio than him. Um, and we both got lean. Uh, I think he, he qualified for pro worlds and I won a pro card. So we both did well. Um, but if you look at some of the numbers of, of what we lost lean versus fat, it was definitely different. The amount of cardio required, how low food had to get, how low carbs had to get. Um, and, and so there, there's definitely even some variability in the even limited uh, evidence we have in the literature. But yeah, once you get even, that's, that's an N of two, but once you start looking at the sport as a whole, I mean, there, there is so much variability, especially when it gets to, um, I know we, we haven't touched really on peak week yet. Um, some guy, you look at the top guys and they all do something different for that. Um, and they all look awesome. Uh, but, you know, just because all the top guys look awesome using different approaches during that last week doesn't mean that those approaches are going to work for everyone. Um, and so there, there definitely is some individual variability, you know, in, in all aspects of, of contest prep. Yeah. I mean, uh, I'm pleased you mentioned Pete Week uh, because um, we're racing through time here. And uh, I think between reading your paper, you know, the listeners can read your paper. And of course, a lot of our other podcasts here talk about protein needs and uh, nutrient timing and so on. So we don't really need to get too much into that. But I think, Eric, um, you, you, I'd love for you to just explain what, what is Peak Week and, you know, what specifically um, have you discovered or in, you know, in, in the research behind this, you know, that, that, that we need to be thinking about as it relates to this Peak Week phase? Well, the, the research behind Peak Week consists of basically a couple case studies, um, a critical uh, analysis of, of someone observing what bodybuilders do, and one not well-designed study on carb loading. Um, so there, there almost is, is zero research. Um, and I actually had a very difficult time um, writing the Peak Week section uh, from an evidence-based quote-unquote standpoint. Um, because of that. Uh, but um, traditionally, peak week, it, what, what that means is unlike performance, we're not trying to reach a performance peak, you know, where you plan your periodization to do more power training or, or to taper or something like that. Uh, rather, it's trying to have a peak in physical appearance on the day of getting on the stage. So it's some combination of strategies to try to enhance the, the appearance of leanness and muscularity. Uh, and normally this takes two sides of a coin, uh, traditionally, not necessarily what we're advocating. Traditionally, this is loading carbohydrates, uh, similar to the way endurance athletes do this before a, um, you know endurance race, on the mindset that as you increase muscle glycogen, you'll increase the visibility of, um, of size, while simultaneously trying to do things uh, to reduce anything that might blur 
uh, visual muscularity, so uh, reducing water intake and manipulating uh, the sodium-potassium balance to try to uh, increase intracellular water and decrease extracellular water uh, to try to get this visual appearance and effect of I'm, I'm big and also very dry and, and there's no blurriness to my physique, quote-unquote. Yeah, however, right. sorry, but however, the some of the assumptions that this practice is based upon have some inherent errors, like the concept of what extracellular and intracellular is is not the same as subcutaneous and intramuscular, uh, as in fact the vascular system is extracellular, and this is why if if you were to de decrease your sodium, your blood pressure goes down. And anyone who has drastically reduced their water intake or their sodium intake uh, and then tries to get a pump is going to find they're going to have trouble doing so. Um, and I, I can tell you from experience that the amount of times that th this process of carb loading and then drying out or trying to dry out uh, succeeds is probably equal to the amount of times that it fails. Um, so we tried to get into some of the underlying physiology to a degree and then kind of pointed out where there is gaps, and then did the best we could with that section. But it's certainly an area where we need um, more research. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's interesting, isn't it? When you talk to bodybuilders, you talk to um, you know guys in the gym who are who are sort of uh, jacked and swole, so to speak. You, you 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 know you talk to coaches, you talk to personal trainers, and so on. Everyone seems to to have you know quite a few ideas about what people should and shouldn't be doing but in reality actually there's virtually no research behind this i mean you're you guys are pretty much the first to pull all this together in one paper and of course there's as you pointed out i mean there is nothing out there so it is it, it is difficult isn't it to try and make decisions about what to do on an evidence base when there is so little evidence that exists out there but what i mean what eric what would you say I mean, what's the what's the main thing that we need to try and be careful with 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 all these sort of opinions and, and ideas that exist out there as it relates to bodybuilding prep? I think uh, two things that both Alan and and Pete said really strike strike a chord with me he, he, uh, that that are that are valuable. You know, Alan said that um, it seems like all the top guys are doing different things, and that's because bodybuilders tend to. Open Overanalyze and micromanage and try to really optimize everything, and often they be they try to optimize things that aren't necessarily optimizable, and you get lost in the in the trees and you can't see the forest. Uh, and in reality, there's a there's a, there's actually a decent amount of similarity between the top guys. They all diet for a long enough period to get very lean. Uh, they all diet until they're very lean. Um, they all do resistance training. They all burn calories in some way. And to, to, to get to get very very lean, they do resistance training to maintain their their muscle mass. And whether they follow a high carb or a high fat diet, they almost always follow a high protein diet um, to varying degrees. Um, so there are some similarities, and I think when you can find those similarities, you know those are the ones where uh, I guess your big rocks are coming from. The the where you should put the most bang for your buck per se, and um, and kind of focusing on those things first before you start to look at the micromanaging and the small details and trying to figure out, like Pete said, all those inter-individual differences that are going to get you that last leg of the way. Um, 
So I would say definitely for the, the average bodybuilder out there or practitioner is start with the big rocks. Make sure that you have your, your, your meat and potatoes on your plate before you start worrying about the garnishings and making sure that all of the large concepts of do I have enough time to diet, do I have an appropriate calorie deficit, uh, do I have a, a decent spread of macronutrients and then a sound resistance training plan uh, to get me to that last leg uh, is the most important thing. And then in terms of peak week, since we were kind of talking about that, I think the big one is, is you've got to be really lean first. Uh, any plan that, that has you kind of wishing upon a star on that final week that something magical is going to happen to your physique is, is probably the result of not having dieted long or hard enough or to effectively enough, really. Um, and if anything, we're hoping to just kind of preserve the fact that you look really good when you're really lean. And maybe we can just get some food back in you and have you looking a little less depleted. Yeah, and I, uh, and I think it's it is worth raising that that sort of warning that that if you're not ready, the consequences of getting yourself ready too fast uh, could result in some rather negative metabolic adaptations. And again, uh, you know, I think it's it's worth the listeners listening to a previous podcast with um, doctors Lane. Len Norton and um, Abby Smith Ryan on that whole topic because you know whilst you may have that competition you might not compete again because you could get yourself into some pretty serious uh, health problems and or or just forever have issues with body comp. Um, so uh, Peter, just uh, the final one of the final topics I wanted to get into here because this is going to be a whopper of a session here um, is supplementation. Obviously, is an area um, that people are going to be focused on to a certain extent. Now, of all the billions of supplements that you could take for bodybuilding prep, from an evidence-based perspective, because we just haven't got time to talk about every supplement known to man, I mean, what are the main supplements that should be seriously considered as part of one's toolbox in prepping for bodybuilding comp? Um, well, in, in the paper, we, we tried to cover some of the supplements that were the most commonly consumed. And so not all of those necessarily have evidence showing that they work. And I guess one caveat, you know, that we I tried to make come across in the paper, but I, I also want to mention is that, you know, supplements are meant to just supplement, you know, that if you don't have your training, your nutrition, cardio, um, intact, uh, and if that's not sound, you're, you're, I mean, you're not going to work any miracles with any supplements you can buy legally, um, but but there are a few that can help. Um, and so, you know, things that that may be helpful. Um, you know, we we didn't talk a lot about you know protein supplements, uh, you know, or or like omega three supplements or anything like that, um, because generally you can find those in food, um, and and you don't really need those if you're consuming them in food. Um, you know, as long as you're hitting your protein numbers each day, you could do that with food or supplement it. It doesn't have to be five, you know, servings of, of whey protein or whatever. Um, like you hear some of the guys at the gym say that you got to get it from from specifically, you know, supplements. Um, you know, you can get it from food. Uh, as far as other supplements, you know, we mentioned in the paper uh, multivitamin. Uh, you know, there there isn't a lot of studies on on body. There aren't a lot of studies on bodybuilders that are recent. There are a few studies following small groups of bodybuilders from about 20 years ago that show that using some of the techniques to prep that were traditionally used, uh, many of these people had had vitamin mineral deficiencies. Um, and 
I whether or not that's an issue with using some of the more, I guess, evidence-based or more modern methods to prep, I'm not sure. But a multivitamin might be helpful during prep to try to, you know, prevent some of those deficiencies. Um, other things that might be helpful: creatine monohydrate, uh, beta alanine potentially. Um, there's some evidence on that. Uh, citrulline malate hasn't been well studied, but the little bit that's out there looks kind of promising. Um, uh, you know, and and there's there's you know we talk a little bit about you know BCAs and HMB are things that we're kind of on the fence on um, as far as as whether or not they help, um, especially when consuming a large amount of protein um, and. You know, we also in the paper mentioned common supplements that people take that, that don't have a, a, a boatload of evidence showing that they necessarily work. Um, and those would be things like glutamine or, or arginine. Um, there, there are plenty of other supplements we could have included. Um, I'm probably leaving some out, but there, there are plenty of other things we could have included. Uh, I mean, there are, you could write books on, on just supplements alone. Um, and so, you know, we just had to pick a few that people commonly use to try to include in this paper because supplement, supplements and supplementing is such a large part of the sport of bodybuilding and just part of the culture that we, we felt we needed to at least address some of the main supplements people were consuming. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think it's, oh, it's, it's, such, it's such an important thing. And we're going to, I've got a future podcast all about uh, the placebo effect uh, and how that's, can be an important factor and of course I know I work primarily in um, with professional rugby and professional soccer football players uh, and um, those guys even though they don't necessarily need to take a supplement if they're not taking a supplement it can have a, a psychological impact on them that may limit their performance and I guess you could apply mm. that to bodybuilding too right if 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 they if everyone else is taking supplements, they might feel that other people have an edge, and that might cause some anxiety, and that could potentially affect some of the some of the issues they may experience in 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 trying to weather the difficulties that they otherwise could avoid, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the you know I, I think about my own gym and and just some of the guys who recreationally lift there, and guys who you know. They they show up at the gym and they have an entire duffel bag full of supplements. But you know when when it comes time to talk to them about their nutrition, they have no idea what they're eating or their training is just whatever they feel like. And so you know I, they kind of have their priorities backwards. But they, you know they they know they got to take those supplements. Yeah. No, I I'm definitely a food first person, and I I think uh, I'm sure all three of you would agree it's entirely possible to to get yourself or get someone on stage in damn good shape and not take a single supplement um it's it's certainly possible and and uh uh, uh even possibly to be encouraged but um alan just just because we're right at the end of this now just 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 quickly let's talk about the limitations behind this i mean we've been talking about the you know the science behind this and we're, we're sort of making this sound like we all know what we're talking about and and so on but we have of course talked about there haven't been many studies. Uh, I mean, what are some of the main limitations behind even approaching doing the science on this? Um, well, you know, there's always going to be conversations that go on between natural lifters and enhanced lifters. And a lot of times what happens is both camps sort of assert their personal experiences upon, upon the other camp. 
and there may be pretty major uh, physiological uh, differences that exist in certain aspects of contest prep between the two camps. So that can kind of add to the confusion, and that's that's where some, kind of some of the um, that's a that's an area of a, a gray area, an area with a lot of limitations there. Um, th I think that the the whole idea of peak week is another huge area that we have a limited objective knowledge of. Uh, like Eric mentioned, um, coming in lean enough to begin with is is part of the big problem sur surrounding peak week. People, <laughs> you know, they're a week out um, from the show when they really need to diet another four to six weeks uh, and, you know, drop, drop a few more pounds of body fat. And it's not a matter of attempting to lose uh, water under the skin. It's really a matter of losing more fat uh, overall. And also the, the other, other really kind of gray area, this whole idea, like Eric mentioned, you know, um, I think this is worth reiterating because it's really important. Some people uh, mistake the whole idea of, of extra, the extracellular versus the intracellular space, and they sort of confuse it with uh, the subcutaneous versus the intramuscular space. Eating-wise, it's very difficult to, uh, if not impossible, to, to pick and choose where you're going to lose water from, whether it be the subcutaneous space or the intramuscular space. Uh, you can't really finally control that. Uh, the only way you can, well, one of the ways, one of the ways that you can tangibly control that is the pre-stage pump. Um, that will shift uh, water into the uh, intramuscular compartment. Um, however, and, and of course the, uh, the intravascular compartment as well. Um, however, the, the whole supposed art and science of manipulating sodium, water, carbohydrate within the final week, Ah man, that, that I don't know um, unless there there are objective studies done comparatively on what happens with different protocols. I don't think we're, we're ever going to to have an objective knowledge basis of of what's optimal with that, and you have to individualize that anyway. Um, uh, th that's the the main limitation that stands out in my mind. Yeah, no, I, yeah. I, I guess in a, quite a few years from now we'll probably maybe repeat another version of this podcast and hopefully we'll have a bit more a bit more science you know to to get into um but i think all of the things that you guys have been pointing out is you know it, it's stuff that most people aren't really aware of because they're more aware of the pseudoscience and the bro science than they are the you know the the, the facts and the limitations to that so finally eric uh I, I just think because it is such a serious thing prepping for a bodybuilding competition i mean what would your what, what would your recommendations be to both an individual looking uh, to get into this um, and and or a, a practitioner looking to help people do this? I mean, what are the what are the real what, what are the main things that that should be considered about even thinking one it has even the you know the, 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 the scope of practice to be giving advice in this area or recognizing one actually really does need help, even if. Even if you've got, as a lot of people feel they do, oh, I've got a lot of knowledge, I've read around a lot. Um, you know, what, I mean, you know, to help people understand when they really should be seeking advice from, from guys like you, you know, real experts that not only have stood up on stage yourselves, but also um, prep other people and, of course, you're highly educated and do the research. I mean, at what point should people go, do you know what, I should refer to someone who knows a bit more about this? 
Well, I think that's actually a great segue to mention that I often refer people out of, of, of my, of, from my, of my services to others to at least work with me because I'm aware of my scope of practice. And this was something we touched on because we added a whole psychosocial section to the, uh, the bodybuilding paper because so many of the things you will do with nutrition, like we spoke about previously, are going to be tied to uh, the behavioral and psychological aspects of what happens during what really amounts to semi-starvation. Um, so I find myself very frequently telling a competitor in as nice a way as possible and trying to emphasize that, hey, this is normal and this is, has a biological component that maybe we need to bring in a, uh, a therapist with a specialty in, in eating disorders. Um, if you look at some of the percentages that we threw around in the paper in that area, we're talking about more than 8 out of 10 people having a, an unhealthy preoccupation with food in the course of, of dieting. And that's, that's just those who admitted it, you know, and half having uh, episodes of binge eating. So um, I would say that anyone who wants to work with a bodybuilder or any bodybuilder would be serving themselves if they had a um, all of their bases covered. I, I have go-to's for injury, you know, because I'm, I'm not a physiotherapist. I have go-to's for uh, eating disorders when they really become full-blown eating disorders rather than just disordered eating uh, because I'm not a clinical therapist. Um, and I, I do have go-to's for actual RDs and nutritionists because, um, you know, if I'm dealing with someone who is, you know, maybe they're pregnant or maybe not that I'm dieting someone who's, who's pregnant. But uh, maybe they have uh, special clinical dietary restrictions or they're taking um, some type of, um, maybe there's, there's a drug interaction if they're taking an antidepressant or something like that. I could think of a, a number of times in my career where I've decided, you know, I need someone who's an RD, not just a nutritional scientist who, who knows about these clinical interactions and uh, specific conditions or, or if they're, a, you know, a diabetic or, you know, a number of different scenarios. So I think knowing your strengths, knowing what you're capable of, uh, but more importantly, knowing where, where you really have no business <laughs> uh, working and giving advice is extremely important. And, um, and there, there's, no, there's no shame. It's the responsible thing to do to refer when you have to step outside of your scope of practice. Um, and definitely need to be aware of all of the, the pros and cons that come with being a competitive bodybuilder. Yeah, no, thank, thank you for that. And I think that is, there comes a point for every expert or practitioner or, or clinician where you really I think you, you know you really do re reach a level of expertise and or maturity within your own practice where you realize you do have a scope of practice and you absolutely for the sake of, of your client and their health and welfare and your own reputation and so on there there is a time when you need to refer but of course that's that's why one needs to engage in continuing education and you know mm -hmm. read read the papers uh, that you guys produce and um, uh, 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 attend training courses and education. It's just a continuous process of learn, practice, uh, observe, and, and so on. And I hope that we get some of this across in our in our work here um, on these podcasts and so on. So anyway, I'd, I'd like to thank you guys for participating uh, in this podcast. It's been wonderful to have you all involved. Um, it, you know, that's the end of uh, this uh, We Do Science podcast on evidence-based recommendations for natural bodybuilding contest prep, uh, specifically nutrition and supplementation. As I mentioned, I highly recommend you all uh, read the paper by um, 
Alan, Peter and Eric on uh, on this very subject in JSSN. It's an open access uh, paper, so you don't have to be a subscriber or, or pay to read it. It is, it is excellent reading in itself. Um, to learn more about uh, these podcasts and um, other projects that we're involved with at Guru Performance, uh, including the ISSN uh, Postgraduate Diploma Program, where we actually uh, analyze and study papers such as um, as this and, and get into, into more of these topics in far more detail from an applied and technical perspective. You can learn about that at issndiploma.com. Uh, but uh, that's it, folks, and I look forward to bringing you another podcast in the near future. And um, obviously, for everything else, check out guruperformance.com. <laughs>